0: Welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hi there. I'm joined by Dr. Rhys Davies, consultant neurologist who works at the Walton Centre. Hello. We've got a 50-year-old uh, gentleman who presented, uh, was referred to neurology complaining of headaches. So he gave a three-day history of a progressively worsening headache. He said it was in a bifrontal location. Since it had come on, it had fluctuated in severity, but had been present to some extent, uh, you know, most of the time. He had. He also felt nauseated with it and had vomited on a few occasions, as well as uh, reported being quite light sensitive. The headache would get sort of exacerbated if he uh, was to bend down or if he was to cough. And since this morning, he noticed a new symptom of double vision. This was particularly when he looked to the right and corrected if he covered either of his eyes. Mm-hmm. He denied any loss of consciousness, there was no fever and no confusion reported by any of his relatives. And had been relatively well apart from recently requiring a course of oral steroids as a treatment for a non-infective exacerbation of his ulcerative colitis. Okay. So his past medical history as I've already alluded to, so he's got ulcerative colitis that had been diagnosed Uh, sort of five years earlier, uh, and he's not got any surgical history of note. He takes Humira, which is one of the monoclonal antibodies for ulcerative colitis. Mm -hmm. He works in administration, is a non-smoker and doesn't drink alcohol. So just pausing at this first point, as a consultant neurologist, when you approach a patient with headache, are there any sort of guiding principles from the outset that you have, uh, you know, when you hear that that's the patient's complaint?
1: Yeah, uh, so... The vast majority of headaches are a horrible nuisance without denoting anything nasty. Uh, and so it's one of those areas of practice where we do use the phrase red flags. So so there are certain things about certain instances of headache that make us concerned that this is more uh, than uh, a case where you need to be very sympathetic to someone who's got a horrible migraine. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: very sudden onset is is one such when when someone might have a uh, an intracranial hemorrhage. Persistence of of headache since onset, uh, especially in a person with no prior headache. Certain uh, additional features. So so the distribution of the headache is generally not terribly useful to us apart from acute headaches the severity isn't very uh very useful either um but um certain additional features like uh being worse with maneuvers that might raise intracranial pressure so coughing or uh, change of posture or um uh, having been lying down uh, overnight so, so so those are uh, factors that would raise suspicion and of course uh, the presence of a neurological deficit uh, really trumps mm. uh, any any pain symptom when a neurologist makes uh, a clinical formulation and, and you've mentioned that there might be something like that present okay. in this case. So
0: I mean I presume you would do a a full neurologic exam, but are there, oh, any, always. Are, there, are there any sort of components of that that you think in this case would be sort of absolutely necessary to yeah. uh, To look
1: for? Well, especially if the patient were rather sick, um, you would do a brief neurological examination of the limbs in this sort of case, but you'd be concentrating on the cranial nerve examination and on the ocular examination in particular, um, and there are several aspects to that, uh, but based on the the two key clues in the history, the fact that it's worse with manoeuvres that raise intracranial pressure, you'd be looking for evidence of raised pressure transmitted to the tissues of the optic nerve, which is uh, the, the one bit of the CNS that we can see directly in living subjects without the head having been opened up. Uh, so, so you'd be wanting to examine the optic discs um, using uh, the direct ophthalmoscope. You'd also be wanting to analyse this symptom of double vision, diplopia. You've said that it's double vision on right gaze um, and uh, that already conjures up
0: something okay. fairly specific, I would suggest. So, so I'll I'll go through the the examination findings and then we'll have a chat about how that sort of might advance the diagnosis for us. So he was normotensive and he was afebrile. So in his cranial nerve exam um on direct fundoscopy the optic disc didn't appear normal. So they appeared swollen and mm-hmm. there was blurring of the disc margin. Mm-hmm. His acuity was 6 over 6 and his visual fields to confrontation appeared normal. Okay, so the the the
1: the uh, blind spot wasn't dramatically enlarged
0: Uh, not dramatically enlarged no Mm -hmm. the extraocular movements uh, were also abnormal when asked to follow uh, my finger the right eye was unable to abduct that's AB duct Mm -hmm. uh, but was able to do all other maneuvers and mm-hmm. the the left eye was able to follow you know all, all movements full, movement. full range of movement so it was just a problem with right eye abduction oh. and then actually the remainder of the, the cranial nerves upper and lower limb exam were normal and both plantar responses were down going okay so what I'd really like to do is sort of look at those examination findings and think about how that might advance your diagnostic reasoning in this case and, I guess more importantly, how you'd formulate a a differential diagnosis and Mm -hmm. and how you'd investigate.
1: So the presence of the disc swelling does very much reinforce uh, a suspicion of raised intracranial pressure here. Um, Obviously, uh, swelling can be caused by hydrostatic pressure um, or can be caused by infiltration, so tissue inflammation. But if this patient is not confused, not blind, uh, then then I think it's very likely that this is a CSF pressure problem Mm. rather than very severe inflammatory or infective or neoplastic disease affecting the intracranial tissues. You've then got uh, this deficit, this focal deficit, and uh, what you've described there is failure of abduction of the right eye, which implies that the right lateral rectus muscle is not working, and that muscle on either side is supplied by uh, a nerve which has that muscle as its only target, and that's the abducens nerve, numerically the sixth cranial nerve. And and that's quite an interesting point because, of course, you could have some structural disease affecting that nerve and as a a secondary effect, causing raised pressure. But there's something unusual about that nerve um, because displacement... From its origin in the brain parenchyma to its exit from the skull is the 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 longest the largest displacement of any of the cranial nerves. So it comes out of the brain at the cerebellopontine angle, and then it ascends the clivus, and it comes out of the cranium uh, with uh, several other nerves um, at the uh, superior orbital fissure. So interestingly, it's bunched with. Uh, the 7th and 8th nerves as it comes out, but it's bunched with the uh, one of the branches of the 5th nerve and the 3rd and 4th nerve where it exits the skull. So, so you can work out really from the numbers mm. that it must travel quite a long way up the mm. brain. Um, and that means that diseases within the meninges, so whether that's a mechanical pressure problem or or any other disease within the meninges that's affecting the meninges diffusely can affect that nerve without there being, say, a lump uh, or a tear just affecting that nerve. And and we use the phrase false localization, so basically quite widespread uh, abnormality of pressure or inflammation um, can have as its manifestation A failure of function of the sixth nerve, Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there is disease within that nerve Mm -hmm. or pinching that nerve specifically.
0: So, so I I get I get the feeling with the nature of the symptoms, the the presence of disc swelling, and the presence of a sixth nerve palsy, you're kind of really building the case for, you know, this being due to raised intracranial pressure. That's right. Um, And just in terms of. things that can cause headaches with raised intracranial pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I presume investigations needed to to help you, you know, decide between the two, mm. but there any, between what can cause that. But are there any various sort of principles you have with regards to what the causes could yeah, be?
1: Yeah. Well, um, the test that's gonna give you the clearest answer here is a lumbar puncture, um, but it's also the test that risks giving you the clearest catastrophic outcome uh, because um, when you have a suspicion of pressure disturbance or a structural abnormality within uh, within the cranium, when you do a lumbar puncture, what you do is introduce a pressure gradient Mm. and you can cause traction of the neural tissues from one compartment to the other, so either uh, hemispheric compartment uh, or, more classically, uh, the, the brainstem uh, constituents uh, being pushed or pulled, rather, through the foramen magnum. So hmm. we, we sometimes call that coning, yeah. and that can be fatal. So, so one needs to make sure that there isn't a structural abnormality that could put the patient at risk of coning before doing CSF analysis in a case like this. And you'd do that by by undertaking a CT head scan to check that there wasn't a a mass lesion, for instance.
0: Okay. Um, Are there any other sort of pathologies apart from mass lesion that could present with? Well, I think a a mass lesion is
1: is somewhat less likely than other diseases here. But I, I suppose we're thinking about three scenarios here and one of them is quite a bit more likely than the other two I think. So uh, the commonest scenario where you've got headache and just a sixth nerve palsy apart from the papilledema is that condition that often affects young women often with a heavy body habitus and that's the condition idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Yeah. So that would fit with some of the key clinical features here the other possibility you've mentioned that the patient is really sick so this patient could have a serious uh, infective inflammatory disease or uh, a serious neoplastic infiltration in the meninges um, and that would need treatment Uh, but actually this tempo and the fact that it's a slightly older man, and you've not told me that you know there are any particular risks for IIH, um, the condition that we would need to be thinking about here would be
0: thrombosis of the intracranial venous structures. Okay, so the the investigations that were done. So he had uh, routine blood work done, which, as you can see, so he, he was slightly anaemic um, with a, a slight uh, microcytosis. Mm. However, when they looked back over his previous blood tests, that was felt to be in keeping with his. diagnosis of Mm -hmm. ulcerative colitis Um, his renal function showed his urine creatinine was slightly high indicating a degree of dehydration Mm -hmm. and again he had had diarrhea in the in the build-up to Mm -hmm. these symptoms and and i guess importantly uh, as from a neurology point of view he'd had a ct head done Mm -hmm. now you can see the 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 ct head scan in front of you here the question was from the team is there any evidence of a bleed on the brain or any evidence of any mass lesions. And the radiologist okay. felt fairly confident that there was neither a bleed nor a mass lesion. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it wasn't entirely normal, the scan. How, how would you describe what, what you can see?
1: So uh, this is a CT head scan and and we can see that there is high attenuation towards the uh, posterior part of The intracranial space uh, on the right side, in an anatomical position that corresponds to the the transverse and and sigmoid venous sinus there, and and is likely to be uh, a a venous sinus thrombosis. And what we also see is that this brain perhaps looks younger than the patient's years. So the brain is is um, you know really filling the the cranium in a way that. We don't always see in fifty-year-olds, and that could uh, reflect a degree of, of edema in the
0: brain. Okay, and indeed, he went on to have a CT venogram, so a dedicated scan looking at the venous structures, and a venous sinus thrombosis was confirmed I see. Yeah. on that scan. Now, as, as it also happened, the radiologist, um, the question was asked about safety of doing a lumbar puncture, mm-hmm. and it was decided it was safe, but okay. after looking at the imaging, and this was so on
1: the basis of there being CSF space. Around the the medulla in the foramen magnum and and the absence of a pressure gradient in any of the yes, cavities yes. on the scan.
0: Yeah. Correct. And and the, the CSF is there. So the constituents of the CSF were normal. The thing that was abnormal was the pressure, so it's 34. What would be normal for
1: that? Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting one, um, and it's a cautionary tale concerning numbers, really, because if you look at some textbooks, you'll find that an opening pressure of between 5 and 15 centimetres of water is, is referred to as normal. The, the reality is that that we hardly ever um, get a recording uh, as low as that in the usual clinical settings. I mean, maybe if you do it under laboratory or theatre conditions, mm. that that is the actual pressure. Um, but when you do a, a, a lumbar puncture in in ED, um, it's it's usually higher. And in the absence of uh, a clinical presentation that's pretty strongly suggestive of raised ICP, neurologists tend not to be too concerned about opening pressures that are below 25 centimetres mm. of water, maybe even a little bit higher. Yes. So if, if you're over 30, then, then you're thinking kind of flips and, and really you need to be very sure that that is a spurious result before you disregard yeah. it. Um, and, you know, once you're over 35, then, mm. then that's abnormal.
0: Great. So, so the so the diagnosis in this case was thought to be a, a venous sinus thrombosis. Yeah,
1: and the uh, absence of reactive changes within the CSF tells us definitively that you know there isn't any cancer in the meninges or yeah. a chronic meningitis,
0: tuberculosis, or something like that. And what, in particular, in this case, do you think is the likely cause for the venous sinus thrombosis? Well, I'm not sure that
1: we always. Define a cause uh, for these things, but but clearly his uh, ulcerative colitis and the fact that he had a relapse of it could be a risk factor with dehydration and whatever the interleukin profile in relation to hemostasis would have would have been um, uh, at that time. So mm. so I think that that background history makes you more relaxed that this is the full story rather than there being something else. I mean, obviously, if if it was a younger person, particularly with no hint of any other medical problem, then you'd be even more keen to look for uh, a hematological mm. abnormality, a thrombophilia, for instance, or perhaps an undiagnosed connective tissue disease in the... Uh, in the SLE group, uh,
0: before letting yeah. letting it go, and um, are there any particular management considerations you would you would have in this case? So if this was your patient. What, what are the kind of immediate decisions hmm. you'd have to make?
1: Yeah. So so this is a, an important condition because it's it's a it's a neurological disease where there is excellent treatment available, um, and actually most patients do. Really well when when anticoagulation is started promptly, but there's a, a minority of patients where the CSF pressure and the intracranial pressure is so high that um, the risk of coning, even without a lumbar puncture being undertaken, is present, and that's a very difficult situation. Mm. And, and certainly, people can succumb in this condition, and 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 those patients. A minority of them might benefit from neurosurgical intervention, but, but once the condition has progressed to that level, yeah. um, it's, it's, the, the prognosis is pretty grave. But But the vast majority do well, and we're then talking about how to implement anticoagulation treatment, which is a is a general medical issue as much as a neurological one. Um, But for most patients nowadays, we opt for low molecular weight heparin as the safest to implement. There are situations where you could opt for unfractionated IV heparin, a scenario where you might need to do another lumbar puncture so that you'd need to stop the anticoagulation briefly to do that. Or if you felt that you wanted to make sure that, that full anticoagulation was, was, was active as soon as possible. Those might be reasons to go for unfractionated heparin. But to be honest, I think some cases where we use unfractionated heparin over mo- low molecular weight heparin even now reflects traditional practice mm. rather than um, actual evidence okay. that, that unfractionated heparin is better than low molecular weight.
0: Great. One of the reasons I wanted to discuss this case is I think that there's lots of, you know, I think it's something to be aware of mm. as for any doctor it's assessing it. patients presenting with headache. Mm. Uh, and I just wonder whether you're able to sort of two to three sort of take home messages for students listening okay. um, about headache in okay. acute headache in general, and I guess in particular venous sinus thrombosis or any sort of key messages. Okay.
1: So that the easiest lesson here is uh, the sixth nerve palsy as a as a false localizing sign that's a, that's a yeah. that's a very definite handy thing to know about uh, secondly uh, the importance of doing lumbar punctures in some patients but also being aware of the risk of doing lumbar punctures and finally to be aware that most headaches are a big nuisance rather than a big nasty but that there are some important, very nasty, yet treatable conditions, and none fits that description more than venous sinus thrombosis.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, and uh, that was really useful. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.